Welcome to Law X.0, a Bloomberg Law podcast dedicated to seeing around corners and preparing you for the next version of the legal industry. The market doesn't always throw money at the right companies. Ventures like WeWork and Theranos garner lots of support, while other, more worthwhile businesses struggle to get off the ground. This can be a big problem for biotech. Big ideas can save lives, but like any innovative industry, there can be a lot of dry holes before you hit a gusher. I'm Dory Goldstein. And I'm Eleanor Tyler, filling in for Meg McAvoy. And today we're talking about that problem. How do biotechs get the funding they need in what can be a competitive and highly regulated environment? So, Eleanor, when we started talking about this topic, I was pretty nervous. It's really far out of my area. But you really had a great explanation that we sort of touched on in that intro, and that's the dry holes. Can you talk about that a little bit for our listeners? Well, so I have a little bit of a background in oil and gas, and so I tend to think by analogy. And with oil and gas exploration, you often have to lease a lot of land and drill a lot of holes before you hit a profitable well. And there are a lot of upfront capital requirements, and you have to keep faith with your investors through any setbacks if you're going to succeed. But you also can't hoard cash because you become an attractive target for a takeover if you get too rich. So how does that really relate to biotech? Well, basically, capital-intensive businesses have a lot of similar constraints. And biotech is, of course, also exploration and marketing and build-out. But then there's a long regulatory road, even when you have a successful innovation with big promise for patients. In biotech, there is also a lot of big money in the wings looking to buy companies close to success, but not necessarily to fund them without taking control. Okay, so it sounds like biotechs have a pretty bumpy road to be successful. Mm, Yep. High risk, but potentially a high reward. So we think this question of funding, the exemptive landscape and public versus private funding, is going to be a hot issue in 2020. And that's why this is the third episode in our series highlighting topics from our Bloomberg Law 2020 project. That's right. The topic focuses on trends and themes that Bloomberg Law Analysis Team will be watching closely in the coming year. And we think you're going to be hearing a lot about these funding issues. Here to tell us more about where funding for biotechs goes from here is J.W. Verrett. J.W. Verrett is an associate professor at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia School of Law. He previously served as the chief economist and senior counsel for the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services and is currently serving on the Investor Advisory Committee of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Welcome, J.W. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here to talk biotech. So biotechs are pretty hot right now. And there are a ton of ways to get funding. I, I guess what I want to know is what's the problem? Well, you got to really dig down into the data, which is what I've had a chance to do. Um, it, this is an issue that, that's been important to me for a while. I've dedicated my career to studying cost-benefit analysis of the federal securities laws, mm-hmm. weighing the costs of regulation against the benefits of, uh, of potentially regulating. And nowhere is that trade-off more cogent, more... Just, just heartfelt than the biotech field, where you're weighing the cost of regulation and compliance against saving lives, against research that literally saves lives and alleviates human suffering. So here's the typical fact pattern we're talking about here. Biotech is, let's say, looking for a, a cure for Alzheimer's or cystic fibrosis or something like that. And they're five or eight years in 
to research and development. So over that time, they've been hemorrhaging cash. They're spending cash. They're not giving it to their investors, no dividends. They're just cash comes in, cash goes out in the form of grants and capital raising. And let's say they go to the FDA and the FDA says, great job on stage two. We've got some new scientists in charge um, and they've got new questions they didn't ask you before. You got to go back and redo stage two. <laughs> and they think, oh no, we, we need another 20, 30 million to do that. Do we have it? No. So how do we get it? Uh, an exemptive offering? Do we do a secondary offering? What do we do? So I've had a chance to work with the Biotech Innovation Organization on a new project where a co-author and I are just going all the way back to the drawing board and saying, what can we do in the regulatory landscape to help you guys out? Okay. So if that's their business model, um, what are the current problems in the regulatory landscape? Let's take, for example, uh, Reg A. That would be a faster way to get out a public offering, for example, or an exempt offering. Can you tell us a little bit about what those are and why they're not working right now? Well, the overall issue, the overall challenge for biotech is we're talking about 10 to 15 years to get to approval. We're talking about an industry in which the non-financial information is far more important, vastly more important than the financial information. I mean, that's the chief problem here. The securities laws are designed around financial information, and we have an industry that uniquely is more risky, more uncertain, and um, uh, essentially contingent on non-financial info. What do you mean by non-financial info? I mean, if you want to know the value of a small cap biotech, um, reading journal articles published by the scientists there is going to be a lot more useful to you than reading an, uh, an audited annual report. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And here's the problem. The avenues for information to get out there in the market have actually been impeded by um, regulatory developments in the early 2000s that were sort of a response to the tech crash. That's one of the things we've looked into in the in our report. What do you mean by that? What happened? So um, Regulation FD, okay. uh, I think is probably the biz- biggest example of this, but also a global analyst settlement and R- other issues. Rewind a little bit. Okay. The <laughs> basics. The here's ba- the basics. Give me a little basics. Regulation FD. Sure. Basic rule says CEO of a company, senior executive of a company wants to share information with the market. Share it with the whole market all at the same time. Everybody gets the same info at the same time. Okay. And if you share it accidentally with someone um, one-on-one, file a form with the SEC immediately Mm -hmm. saying what what you shared. Um, That was a solution to the problem of conflicts of interest among investment analysts. Sure, it was a strong solution. And in fact, a solution that was a little bit too strong because the result was for big companies, analyst coverage continues. For the smallest cap companies, particularly small cap biotechs, less than a billion market cap, a desert of analyst coverage. There's just no research. There's no analyst coverage. That impacts liquidity. What what uh, my co-author and I, who I should mention now, he's a great, terrific, brilliant co-author, Scott Bogus, mm-hmm. who used to be chief economist at the SEC. We've looked into the effects of Reg FD on the smaller cap portion of the market. And we have a suggestion, simply this. It would be helpful if firms could develop one-on-one relationships with analysts, the same way you might develop a relationship with a reporter that you can trust, and share information with that analyst first, disclose that relationship within seven days in a filing with the SEC, and then maybe you bring some water to the desert of analyst coverage that these small cap biotechs are facing. It almost seems as though the problem that you're describing is a market problem. It's hard to get the analyst interested rather than a disclosure problem. Would there be other ways of building up an analyst base aside from 
an exception to FD? Well, we look at, in, in this, probably the first piece of the problem, the flows of information to the market, we look at it holistically. We look at Reg FD combined with the global analyst settlement combined with pending MIFID II rules, which limit the ability of mutual funds to subsidize research and bundle the cost of research with other things that they're getting for brokers. Um, we look at all of those holistically, and we, we raise some concerns about all of them in the small cap space. And essentially what we, what we urge is, look, if you want to do this for the bigger parts of the market that have analyst coverage, that's fine. But for small reporting companies, less than $250 million market cap, less than $100 million revenue, let's develop some smart exemptions where there's a desert of coverage. So is biotech the only industry where it this happens? Does this happen in other sectors? I think it's a problem across the small cap landscape, but it's unique in biotech because, again, I think what's unique there is the information transmission mechanisms are so much more important because the information is so much more complex and it's non-financial, it's scientific. So tech gets some of that, but biotech, I think it's a worse problem. And I think also one of the issues biotech faces that tech doesn't generally face because tech has been able to develop these big unicorns through purely private funding. Tech, their business model allows them to generate investment interest as they generate customer interest, right? That's not true in biotech. Your customers don't know yet. They don't They don't know right. about the cure yet that, that they could use. I was about to ask about that. I mean, if you mentioned that what's important is outstanding research and um, the potential application of what's being studied. Isn't that information typically public already? Um, well, yeah, but uh, I mean, it, it, it's not something. So it, it might get public by the by way of, for example, an 8K filing. But you might need to have a conversation about it because uh, you might want to sit down with a scientist there and say, look, I need to know what what, what do you expect is going to happen at the FDA? What, what, what were the concerns raised? Let's dig in here. Um, and I think it would be helpful to have those one-on-one investment analyst conversations with individual scientists at firms to dig in. And then that analyst gets to be the first one to publish the analysis. And they get their name for it, which doesn't raise entire trading right. concerns after they publish their analysis. Um, and if there's a conflict of interest concern, look, disclose it. Disclose it. That's what we That's what we urge. It sounds like the issue here that we're talking about is that the analyst needs to understand better what's happening in the biotech with the non-financial information. And and how much of it is just an unsolvable problem of biotech is complex and not normally what analysts do, and, and it's just always going to be hard to understand. How much of this problem is just stemming from that? The answer, I don't know. Uh-huh. But the only thing I do know is we don't need regulation to make it worse. <laughs> so that's the first uh, general issue is market dynamics and the information flows to the market. Um, another thing we wor- Scott and I have worked on is looking at existing exemptions and um, adding to them in the spirit of the JOBS Act, which was bipartisan, President Obama and the Republicans mm-hmm. in Congress passed together, and just adjusting it a little bit for the unique needs of biotech. So for example, one of the other things we suggest, we've talked to biotech firms and they say, look, the current um, pathway to get to private investments, non-public investments, is a wealth test. Uh, the SEC is working on expanding that to include also expertise. A little bit, not much, just a little bit. If you have a license with FINRA to sell securities, basically, you might also get to invest in these things. We say, let's build on that theme. If you have an MD or a PhD in biosciences, you're ready to invest in biotech. In fact, you're much more ready than if you're a CPA or a CFA or meet the wealth test in the existing accredited investor definition. So that's another suggestion we work up. 
We've heard from a number of biotechs that say we get a lot of doctors investing because they understand the science, but they're not quite at the 250K annual requirement. Um, and uh, we think it's a smart suggestion that that's in line with existing existing exemptions. I was about to ask about private placements and the existing exempt offering regulation and why it wouldn't work for this application. So that explains some of that to me as well. Yeah. And you had mentioned Reg A before. I just want to mention briefly, that's a big suggestion we've presented to the biotech group. Um, And I should mention, they haven't endorsed any of these ideas. They're they're mulling them over. They're they're (laughs) They're digesting them. them. Uh, We hope that they're useful. We've done the best we can to put all our best uh, ideas forward. We've sent them about 18 ideas. 18. Um, But Reg A is important. Reg A has not been a big uh, venue for biotech offerings. Reg A is sort of a hybrid, kind of public, kind of private, uh, a little bit more disclosure than private, not as much as fully public. Um, The problem is they're just, the the, the ceiling is a problem. So uh, you can only do a, for what's called tier two offerings, primarily SEC regulated Reg A offerings, you can only do uh, up to 50 million. We'd like to raise that ceiling to 100 million. And we'd like to also allow firms to stay permanently um, non-full Exchange Act issuer, just just Reg A on the baby Reg A as long as they need to. Right now, you have to go full exchange uh, listing after three years. Um, so we think that will help make Reg A a more uh, uh, more of a, of a reasonable venue for biotech firms. One of the problems with the biotechs we talked to is they said, you know, when we went public, our underwriter just didn't even mention Reg A because it was small potatoes. That's that's just not a market they play in. So I think further um, uh, grooming of reggae, allow it to really thrive is what is what's needed. But it would be a great market, great hybrid public-private for biotech listings. So not all biotechs are, are wonderful, right? Uh, we mentioned Theranos, a pretty famous example of mm-hmm. something that went bust. What happens to businesses like Theranos if every single one of your 18 suggestions were reality? Well, I mentioned two things. First, we're not really talking about Theranos. Theranos is much bigger than the type of biotechs we're talking about. We're talking okay. about firms 50 to 100 million market cap. And I think, I don't know offhand what Theranos market cap got to, but it was well north of a billion, probably a couple billion, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so we're talking about firms that are having a lot of trouble doing the right thing and much, much, much smaller. Um, I would also urge, you know, biotech can be a great investment for everyone, but do it in a diversified portfolio. Um, that's, the, that's rule one for all investments, but particularly here. I think Theranos started out a small fish before it got to be a giant fish. Okay. Um, and so one of the things that perhaps critics of this type of approach might have is that, you know, if you weaken disclosure, if you weaken requirements for allowing uh, non-public information to go to a limited set of individuals, isn't there always the threat that somebody takes that and runs with it against the public interest? What you know, what I've suggested so far isn't that big a shift. For example, opening up Reg A to bigger offerings, Reg A still has um, audited financials that are that are provided twice a year. Um, we, uh, you know, if you allow more doctors to invest in Reg D offerings, I don't think you're going to enable the next Theranos in any particular way unique to that. Um, so I think they're modest suggestions, um, and they're a product of a great, you know, collaborative relationship between a lifelong regulator, Scott Vogus, mm-hmm. and a lifelong critic of regulation, myself, libertarian, <laughs> and we've had a lot of great exchanges back and forth, and it helps keep me grounded, and, and um, uh, so that's kind of how we got to where we are. What implications do you think these suggestions would have for the exempt market in general? 
Um, well, we primarily look at the uh, reggae offerings hybrid and regulatory um, uh, issues in the in the public markets. Um, but in Reg D, uh, you know, we offer a couple of ideas. Uh, one I mentioned to in expand the accredited investor definition. Another one is to decrease the holding period for Rule One Forty Four. Just basically speaking, <laughs> you saw. Just, yep, I I just had a very confused look on yep. my face. <laughs> Th- basically, this: if you're going to provide private venture capital type or individual investor investment, if they want to resell it, they need some kind of an exemption. Well, Rule Run Forty Four okay. says wait a year and then you can sell. Well, that year and and for some uh, other instances, it's six months. So we we suggest bringing it down to six and three rather than one and six. The SEC cut it in half down to one and six. No bad outcomes from that. There have been studies of that. No increase in fraud from that. So we suggest bring it down to six and three. So your 18 proposals, what are the chances? Are they going to happen? When are they going to happen? Um, I think some of them could be pretty easy mm-hmm. and could happen right away. One of the suggestions is just that the small business advocate needs to, to, to focus on the needs of small cap biotechs and, and, and put out more information to help if you're starting from scratch, a, a guide, A to Z, what individuals are you going to work with, what services providers do you have to work with, and information about who does what, where. Because you know when you go public, there's all kind of people who are there saying, I'd love to help you raise money. It's going to cost you, though. So more information from the SEC Small Business Advocate to help small biotech scientists who want to start their own biotech. They need to get the, you know, the, the one guide to that. I think that's easy. Ranging to things that are a little bit more difficult, but are in line with the kind of exemptions the current commission has been doing, to things that will require congressional uh, action, but are similar to the types of exemptions we saw in the Jobs Act, which was bipartisan. And let me put it this way. I mean, let's say Joe Biden wins the presidency next next year. And remember, he w- spent a lot of time on, on the cancer moonshot project. Right, he right? did. That has implications for everything we're talking about here today. That's true. So I think this can be bipartisan. This is not a Wall Street thing. It's not a Dodd-Frank thing. It's a small cap exemption thing in line with the JOBS Act, which was bipartisan in 2012. Thank you, JW, for joining us. If listeners want to follow more of your work, where can they find you? Uh, follow me on Twitter at, at JW Verrett or my faculty webpage. Just Google. I'm, I'm right there. I'm so interested to see if any of JW's suggestions actually sway regulators. Honestly, in this administration, I've given up trying to guess. Thank you, JW Verrett, for joining us, and thank you to Peter Rasmussen for helping out on this episode. Join us next week for the final episode of our Bloomberg Law 2020 series. If you want to hear more about our predictions for 2020, visit pro.bloomberglaw.com slash bloomberg-law-2020. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dory underscore Goldstein. That's D-O-R-I underscore G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. And I'm at Eleanor, E-L-E-A-N-O-R underscore S underscore T-Y-L-E-R. You've been listening to Law X.0 from Bloomberg Law. For more Bloomberg Law analysis, visit news.bloomberglaw.com slash Bloomberg law dash analysis. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. You probably have a lot of questions about the environment. Well, so do we. Are we talking like radioactive chemicals? Is this becoming sort of irrelevant if the U.S. doesn't participate in this? What's going on here? How far did the Trump administration go? And is mining really better 
down where it's wetter. Climate change, chemicals, water pollution, you name it. If it's in the environment, we're talking about it. Listen to Bloomberg Environment's official podcast, Parts Per Billion, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, get up-to-the-minute reporting at our website, news.bloombergenvironment.com.